Chapter Twenty Four, Part Five of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Four, The Hundred Years' War. Charles the Seventh and Joan of Arc, fourteen twenty two to fourteen sixty two, part five. However that may be, when Orleans was relieved and Charles the Seventh crowned, the situation, posture, and part of Joan underwent a change. She no longer manifested the same confidence in herself and her designs. She no longer exercised over those in whose midst she lived the same authority. She continued to carry on war, but at haphazard sometimes with and sometimes without success, just like La Hire and Dunois, never discouraged, never satisfied, and never looking upon herself as triumphant. After the coronation, her advice was to march at once upon Paris, in order to take up a fixed position in it, as being the political centre of the realm of which Rheims was the religious. Nothing of the sort was done. Charles and La Tremoille once more began their course of hesitation, tergiversation, and changes of tactics and residence without doing anything of a public and decisive character. They negotiated with the Duke of Burgundy, in the hope of detaching him from the English cause, and they even concluded with him a secret, local, and temporary truce. From the 20th of July to the 23rd of August, Joan followed the king whithersoever he went, to Chateau Thierry, to Senlis, to Blois, to Provence, and to Compiègne, as devoted as ever but without having her former power. She was still active, but not from inspiration, and to obey her voices, simply to promote the royal policy. She wrote the Duke of Burgundy a letter full of dignity and patriotism, which had no more effect than the negotiations of La Tremoille. During this fruitless labor amongst the French, the Duke of Bedford sent for five thousand men from England, who came and settled themselves at Paris. One division of this army had a white standard, in the middle of which was depicted a distaff full of cotton. A half-filled spindle was hanging to the distaff, and on the field, studded with empty spindles, bore this inscription, Now, fair one, come. Insult to Joan was accompanied by redoubled war against France. Joan, saddened and wearied by the position of things, attempted to escape from it by a bold stroke. On the 23rd of August, 1429, she set out from Compiègne with the Duc d'Alencon, and a fair company of men-at-arms, and suddenly went and occupied Saint-Denis, with the view of attacking Paris. Charles the Seventh felt himself obliged to quit Compiègne likewise, and went, greatly against the grain, says a contemporary chronicler, as far as into the town of Senlis. The attack on Paris began vigorously. Joan, with the Duke d'Alencon, pitched her camp at La Chapelle. Charles took up his abode in the abbey of Saint-Denis. The municipal corporation of Paris received letters with the arms of the Duc d'Alencon, which called upon them to recognize the king's authority, and promised a general amnesty. The assault was delivered on the 8th of September. Joan was severely wounded, but she insisted upon remaining where she was. Night came, and the troops had not entered the breach which had been opened in the morning. Joan was still calling out to persevere. The Duc d'Alencon himself begged her, but in vain, to retire. La Tremoille gave orders to retreat, and some knights came up, 
set Joan on horseback, and led her back against her will, to La Chapelle. "'By my Martin, staff of command,' said she, "'the place would have been taken.' One hope still remained. In concert with the Duke d'Alencon she had caused a flying bridge to be thrown across the Seine opposite Saint-Denis. The next day but one she sent her vanguard in this direction. She intended to return thereby to the siege, but by the king's order the bridge had been cut adrift. Saint-Denis fell once more into the hands of the English. Before leaving, Joan left there, on the tomb of Saint-Denis, her complete suit of armor and a sword she had lately obtained possession of, at the Saint-Honor Gate of Paris, as a trophy of war. From the 13th of September, 1429, to the 24th of May, 1430, she continued to lead the same life of efforts, ever equally valiant and equally ineffectual. She failed in an attempt upon Les Mires. Charite sur Loire, undertaken, for all that appears, with the sole design of recovering an important town in the possession of the enemy. The English evacuated Paris, and left the keeping of it to the Duke of Burgundy, no doubt to test his fidelity. On the 13th of April, 1430, at the expiration of the truce he concluded, Philip the Good resumed hostilities against Charles the Seventh. Joan of Arc once more plunged into them with her wonted zeal. Ile de France and Picardy became the theatre of war. Campania was regarded as the gate of the road between these two provinces, and the Duke of Burgundy attached much importance to holding the key of it. The authority of Charles the Seventh was recognized there, and a young knight of Campania, William de Flavie, held the command there as a lieutenant of La Tremoy, who had got himself appointed captain of the town. La Tremoy attempted to treat with the Duke of Burgundy for the cession of Campania, but the inhabitants were strenuously opposed to it. They were, they said, the king's most humble subjects, and they desired to serve him with body and substance, but as for trusting themselves to the Lord Duke of Burgundy, they could not do it. They were resolved to suffer destruction, themselves and their wives and children, rather than be exposed to the tender mercies of the said duke. Meanwhile Joan of Arc, after several warlike expeditions in the neighborhood, re-entered Campania, and was received there with a popular expression of satisfaction. She was presented, says a local chronicler, with three hogsheads of wine, a present which was large and exceedingly costly, and which showed the estimate formed of this maiden's worth. Joan manifested the profound distrust with which she was inspired of the Duke of Burgundy. There is no peace possible with him, she said, save at the point of the lance. She had quarters at the house of the king's attorney, Le Boucher, and shared the bed of his wife, Mary. She often made the said Mary rise from her bed to go and warn the said attorney to be on his guard against several acts of Burgundian treachery. At this period, again, she said she was often warned by her voices of what must happen to her, she expected to be taken prisoner before St. John's, or Midsummer Day, June 24th. On what day and hour she did not know. She had received no instructions as to sorties from the place, but she had constantly been told that she would be taken, and she was distrustful of the captains who were in command there. She was, nevertheless, not the less bold and enterprising. On the 20th of May, 1430, the Duke of Burgundy came and laid siege to Campania. Joan was away on an expedition to Crepy in Valois, with a small band of three or four hundred brave comrades. On the 24th of May, the eve of Ascension Day, she learned that Campania was besieged, and she resolved to re-enter it. She was reminded that her force was a very weak one to cut its way through the besiegers' camp. "'By my Martin,' said she, "'we are enough. 
I will go see my friends in Campania. She arrived about daybreak without hindrance, and penetrated into the town, and repaired immediately to the Paris church of St. Jacques to perform her devotions on the eve of so great a festival. Many persons, attracted by her presence, and amongst others, from a hundred to six-score children, thronged to the church. After hearing Mass, and herself taking the communion, Joan said to those who surrounded her, My children and dear friends, I notify you that I am sold and betrayed, and that I shall shortly be delivered over to death. I beseech you, pray God for me. When evening came, she was not the less eager to take part in a sortie with her usual comrades, and a troop of about five hundred men. William de Flavie, commandant of the place, got ready some boats on the Oise to assist the return of the troops. All the town gates were closed, save the bridge gate. The sortie was unsuccessful. Being severely repulsed and all but hemmed in, the majority of the soldiers shouted to Joan, "'Try to quickly regain the town, or we are lost.' "'Silence,' said Joan. "'It only rests with you to throw the enemy into confusion. Think only of striking at them.' Her words and her bravery were in vain. The infantry flung themselves into the boats, and regained the town, and Joan and her brave comrades covered their retreat. The Burgundians were coming up en masse upon Campania, and Flavie gave orders to pull up the drawbridge and let down the portcullis. Joan and some of her following lingered outside, still fighting. She wore a rich surcoat and a red sash, and all the efforts of the Burgundians were directed against her. Twenty men thronged round her horse, and a Picard archer, a tough fellow and mighty sour, seized her by her dress and flung her on the ground. All, at once, called on her to surrender. "'Yield you to me,' said one of them. "'Pledge your faith to me. I am a gentleman.' It was an archer of the Bastard of Wandon, one of the lieutenants of John of Luxembourg, Count of Ligny. "'I have pledged my faith to one other than you,' said Joan, "'and to him I will keep my oath.' The archer took her and conducted her to Count John, whose prisoner she became. Was she betrayed and delivered up, as she had predicted? Did William de Flavie purposely have the drawbridge raised and the portcullis lowered before she could get back into Campania? He was suspected of it at the time, and many historians have endorsed the suspicion. But there is nothing to prove it. That La Tremoille, Prime Minister of Charles the Seventh, and Reginald de Chartres, Archbishop of Rheims, had an antipathy to Joan of Arc, and did all they could, on every occasion, to compromise her and destroy her influence, and that they were glad to see her a prisoner, is as certain as anything can be. On announcing her capture to the inhabitants of Rem, the archbishop said, she would not listen to counsel and did everything according to her pleasure. But there is a long distance between such expressions and a premeditated plot to deliver to the enemy the young heroine who had just raised the siege of Orléans and brought the king to be crowned at Rem. History must not, without proof, impute crimes so odious and so shameful to even the most depraved of men. However that may be, Joan remained for six months the prisoner of John of Luxembourg, who, to make his possession of her secure, sent her, under good escort, successively to his two castles of Beaulieu and Beaurevoir, one in the Vermandois and the other in the Cambrises. Twice, in July and in October 1430, Joan attempted, unsuccessfully, to escape. The second time she carried despair and hardihood so far as to throw herself down from the platform of her prison. She was picked up, cruelly bruised, but without any fracture or wound of importance. Her fame, her youth, her virtue, her courage, 
made her, even in her prison and in the very family of her custodian, two warm and powerful friends. John of Luxembourg had with him his wife, Joan of Bethune, and his aunt, Joan of Luxembourg, godmother of Charles the Seventh. They both of them took a tender interest in the prisoner, and they often went to see her, and left nothing undone to mitigate the annoyances of a prison. One thing only shocked them about her, her man's clothes. They offered her, as Joan herself said, when questioned upon this subject at a later period during her trial, a woman's dress, or stuff to make it to her liking, and requested her to wear it. But she answered that she had not leave from our Lord, and that it was not yet time for it. John of Luxembourg's aunt was full of years and reverenced as a saint. Hearing that the English were tempting her nephew by the offer of a sum of money to give up his prisoner to them, she conjured him in her will, dated September 10, 1430, not to sully by such an act the honor of his name. But Count John was neither rich nor scrupulous, and pretexts were not wanting to aid his cupidity and his weakness. Joan had been taken at Compagna on the 23rd of May, in the evening, and the news arrived in Paris on the 25th of May in the morning. On the morrow, the 26th, the registrar of the university, in the name and under the seal of the Inquisition of France, wrote a citation to the Duke of Burgundy, to the end that the maid should be delivered up to appear before the said inquisitor, and to respond to the good counsel, favor, and aid of the good doctors and masters of the University of Paris. Peter Cochon, Bishop of Beauvais, had been the prime mover in this step. Some weeks later, on the 14th of July, seeing that no reply arrived from the Duke of Burgundy, he caused a renewal of the same demands to be made on the part of the university, in more urgent terms, and he added in his own name that Joan, having been taken at Compagna, in his own diocese, belonged to him as judge spiritual. He further asserted that, according to the law, usage, and custom of France, every prisoner of war, even were it king, dauphin, or other prince, might be redeemed in the name of the King of England in consideration of an indemnity of ten thousand livres granted to the capturer. Nothing was more opposed to the common law of nations and to the feudal spirit, often grasping but noble at bottom. For four months still John of Luxembourg hesitated, but his aunt, Joan, died at Boulogne on the 13th of November, and Joan of Arc had no longer near him this powerful intercessor. The King of England transmitted to the keeping of his coffers at Rouen in gold coin, English money, the sum of ten thousand livres. John of Luxembourg yielded to the temptation. On the 21st of November, 1430, Joan of Arc was handed over to the King of England, and the same day the University of Paris, through its rector, Hebert, besought that sovereign, as King of France, to order that this woman be brought to their city, for to be shortly placed in the hands of the justice of the church, that is, of our honoured lord, the bishop and count of Beauvais and also of the ordained inquisitor in France, in order that her trial may be conducted officially and securely. It was not to Paris, but to Rouen, the real capital of the English in France, that Joan was taken. She arrived there on the 23rd of December, 1430. On the 3rd of January, 1431, an order from Henry the Sixth, King of England, placed her in the hands of the Bishop of Beauvais, Peter Cochon. Some days afterwards, Count John of Luxembourg, accompanied by his brother, the English Chancellor, by his esquire, and by two English lords, Richard Beauchamp, Earl of Warwick, and Humphrey, Earl of Stafford, the King of England's constable in France, entered the prison. Had John of Luxembourg come out of sheer curiosity, 
or to relieve himself of certain scruples by offering Joan a chance for her life? Joan, said he, I am come hither to put you to ransom, and to treat for the price of your deliverance. Only give us your promise here to no more bear arms against us. In God's name, answered Joan, are you making a mock of me, Captain? Ransom me! You have neither the will nor the power. No, you have neither. The Count persisted. I know well, said Joan, that these English will put me to death. But were they a hundred thousand more goddams than have already been in France, they shall never have the kingdom. At this patriotic burst on the heroine's part, the Earl of Stafford half drew his dagger from the sheath, as if to strike Joan, but the Earl of Warwick held him back. The visitors went out from the prison and handed over Joan to the judges. The court of Rouen was promptly formed, but not without opposition and difficulty. Though Joan had lost somewhat of her greatness and importance by going beyond her main object, and by showing recklessness, unattended by success, on small occasions, she still remained the true, heroic representative of the feelings and wishes of the nation. When she was removed from Beaurevoir to Rouen, all the places at which she stopped were like so many luminous points for the illustration of her popularity. At Arras, a Scot showed her a portrait of her which he wore, an outward sign of the devoted worship of her lieges. At Amiens, the Chancellor of the Cathedral gave her audience at confession and administered to her the Eucharist. At Abbeville, ladies of distinction went five leagues to pay her a visit. They were glad to have had the happiness of seeing her so firm and resigned to the will of our Lord. They wished her all the favors of heaven, and then wept affectionately on taking leave of her. Joan, touched by their sympathy and open-heartedness, said, "'Ah, what good people this is! Would to God I might be so happy, when my days are ended, as to be buried in these parts!' End of chapter 24, part 5